Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for preachers, teachers, and God's slanted creatures. I'm Rachel Wren. And I'm Tim McNinch, feeling a little <laughs> slanted today. What was that? V8, Leaning. old V8 com- commercials, right? Everybody's walking around <laughs> yeah. on a slant. Yeah, That's exactly. That's what it was. Okay. Exactly. And for all of you people who are not old people, you will not know <laughs> what in the world we're talking about. You will not. You also can't see us, but we're both leaning here (laughs) as we do this over Zoom. (laughs) All that to say, welcome. And yes, we are in the season of Advent. This is the third week of Advent that we're doing this week, which falls on December 13th this year. And the passage for third Advent, the first reading is Isaiah 61, 1 to 4 and 8 to 11. Rachel's been kind of working with us in thinking about how to how to tell Advent slant. And so she's got some stuff here. I will note that Isaiah 61 takes us back to um, what scholars refer to as third Isaiah. It's possible that this part comes from a, a, a prophetic tradition that is speaking to people who have already returned from Babylonian exile back into the land to try to forge a new life there but encounter all sorts of difficulties and um, things just aren't the way they were before. Trying to figure out what what you do on that side of trauma. We pick up another famous text that's used in the New Testament, and we're going to talk through this for Third Advent. What you got, Rachel? Well, as you said, Tim, this comes in Third Isaiah. And if we were to think about the three different Isaiahs, Isaiah 1 could be conceived of as warning. Isaiah 2 couldn't be conceived of as comfort in the midst of, you know, the disaster that we were warned about. And then Isaiah 3 or 3rd Isaiah could be understood as a move to rebuilding after the disaster is um, mostly over. We're not there in our society right now, at least not at the time of recording and I'm assuming not at the (laughs) time of airing either. We are yet in the midst of exile, one could say. And so... Preaching on a text that is about rebuilding can feel a little odd, but there are yet some similarities between our current moment and what's going on in 3rd Isaiah, because what 3rd Isaiah is really wrestling with is this idea that we're back and things are still not going super great. We're starting to see some of the same problems as Israelites or now Judahites that got us into major trouble in the first place. In other words, the exile didn't work. Now, remember, if you go back a little bit, the biblical text assumes or or projects or says that God let the people be sent into exile because after centuries of apostasy and idolatry and abuse of power, God finally decided to let the consequences of their actions fall on their heads, almost like a sort of last resort. And it didn't work. What we're seeing in 3rd Isaiah is all those bad behaviors we saw before, they're coming back all over again. If you were coming at this from a Lutheran angle, you might say that no matter how hard you hammer down with the law, all it can do is beat bad habits. It can never create new good ones. So the Israelites or the Judahites are, are in a bind here. They're like, we know what happened the last time we went through this mess, something really, really bad. Is God going to just have us travel down that same route all over again? 
Or is something different going to happen? Not to put too like precise a moment on this, but this text is talking about what happens when we have all the tools and all of the resources and all of the knowledge possible to do the right thing, and we choose not to do it anyway. Yeah, I'm just going to let that hang there for a minute. <laughs> so what you start to see in Third Isaiah is a move towards a different solution. It's a solution that has nothing to do with whether or not humans can stay faithful to God and can treat each other well, because guess what? Third Isaiah says we can't. In Isaiah 65, which is a couple chapters after this one, God talks about this as a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. Here in Isaiah 61, if we were to put this in terms of a, a musical analogy, we're starting to hear the first movement of that symphony. That's a really interesting way to frame this whole section of Isaiah. Now take us into Isaiah 61. What are we seeing here that sort of are the first notes uh, in that symphony? One of the things that we see is a, a, an interesting way of imaging God. To get to that image, though, you have to first deal with how the people are imagined. And we see that in, in verse 1 right away. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me as a herald of joy. And this is, again, the JPS. Um, he has sent me as a herald of joy to the humble to bind up the brokenhearted. I want to pause over that word brokenhearted for a minute because it's really helpful in um, giving us a clear understanding of what's going on with the people. Now, if I were to tell you, Tim, that someone is brokenhearted, what might you imagine or what sort of image comes to mind? Somebody who's really sad, mm -hmm. um, just feeling really down and devastated. Yeah, absolutely. All of the sad feels, right? Mm -hmm. You've got the pint of Ben and Jerry's, you're in front of the TV watching the sad movie, like you are feeling sad emotions. It's a very emotion-laden word, right? Mm -hmm. So lave in Hebrew, the word for heart, lave, it doesn't have necessarily that same connotation. It's got a range of meanings. It can mean heart, the way we think of heart as kind of the center of our emotions, but it can also mean will, it can mean cognition, um, it can mean logic or mind. Uh, they didn't have a word for brain in Hebrew. We don't actually know what they thought the pink mushy stuff in <laughs> our head was, um, but they didn't have a word for it. And they certainly didn't think of it as the center of logic. That center of logic and center of emotions really were both located in the lave, in the heart, in Hebrew. There's a really nice ethnography called Managing Turbulent Hearts, um, and ethnography is just a study of a group of people, essentially. Um, this one in particular studies a community in Bali, and specifically the Balinese understanding of heart and that understanding of heart is, I think, closer to what's going on in the Hebrew because the ethnographer, the studier, um, just kept asking people if they made decisions with their head or with their heart. And when she would ask those questions, they would look at her as if she was speaking nonsense because they couldn't distinguish between the two. Mm. They called this concept your heart mind. And it's this idea that the two are inextricably interrelated. You, you cannot take them apart. Uh, more than that, you cannot make good decisions or be a sane human being 
without an equal balance between the two. Hmm, that's interesting. So when a, a heart mind gets broken, that's more than just yeah. having the bad feels. Exactly. That's an that's a perfect way to say that. And we see that in the particular word that here is chosen to describe the heart. Shavar, shavar, broken. Shavar in the Hebrew Bible typically refers to physical things that are broken. Doors, bones, bodies, weapons, ships. Um, but here, it's not something physical that has been ripped asunder. Sigrid Eder has a really nice article on this where she talks about the fact that it's something which should not be able to be broken without destroying the whole human machine. She says the metaphor, the nishbare lev, refers to those whose inner life and whose center of life, including their minds and feelings, were broken like you break bones into pieces. Mm. So this is an image of a people that is not only sad and that is not only devastated, but has something almost fundamentally wrong or broken about them. And here's what's so cool about seeing the way God is imagined in this text. Tyler Mayfield, in the book that we've been talking about, Unto Us a Child is Born, he has a great line on page 114 where he talks about the image of God that's depicted in verses 3 and 4, how the people shall be called oaks of victory and they are planted by God for his glory. Tyler says, or Dr. Mayfield says, God is a gardener tending the shoots and bulbs. And on the, on, on the first part, I love that image because what does, it, what does the image of a gardener provoke? Hope. You know, there, there is nothing more hopeful than putting a tiny little dot into the ground <laughs> and expecting that you're going to get tomatoes out of that, you know, big, ripe, luscious tomatoes. And so, so God is the one who's pictured as the one who is hoping at this moment that, that this text almost flips that Advent theme of waiting as God waiting for us, that God is the one that is patiently tending all of the soil that is maybe feels like it's covering or pressing down on us right now. And God is just waiting, patiently waiting for our hard shells to crack open and for us to kind of bleed love and life into the world. So I really love that first image of God. But then secondly, the, the text shifts kind of subtly when we get to verse 11. And in that text, God isn't the gardener. In that verse, God is the garden. That verse reads, For as the earth brings forth its shoots, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up. God is not the one tending the earth. God is set in parallel to the earth. God's the dirt. <laughs> God is the garden in which we are sown. It's soil that is so fertile, it doesn't need a gardener to deal with it. God has all of the nutrients we need to grow. God is the divine ground into which you have been planted and will cause you to spring forth, almost whether you like it or not. And when you do, you will be nothing but righteousness and praise. And this kind of sounds like a simplistic idea. But Psalm 126, which is the assigned psalm for this day, gives it a nice nuance because Psalm 126 is shot through with both hope and despair. It has this line, may those who sow with tears reap with shouts of joy. And that's flipping the metaphor once more, but I love that idea of 
hope and despair being hidden in the ground at the ground that is God, you know, the divine self, and then just watching as God gives the growth. It's sort of this idea that um, the growth, the righteousness, the praise is taken out of our hands. And instead, it is something that is just called forth naturally from us because we're planted in God. The way that this plays with that metaphor from God, both as a gardener, but then later on in the text, God as the very ground itself causing mm-hmm. new life to spring out of us. That's, that, um, that makes a lot of sense in a text that talks about people whose um, heart mind has been broken. Their very uh, agency, power to direct the course of their lives has been broken. And now here's a, here's a prophecy that says that God is able to restore that. I think so. And I think there's also some fun ways to preach this in the midst of pandemic, because I think a lot of people might feel like righteousness and praise are kind of outside of my grasp right now. Like I, I just don't even have the energy or the whatever it might be to praise or to work or to serve or to reach out in joy. And this text is kind of saying like, well, maybe just watch for a little bit, mm. you know, because because you've been planted in God, you're going to do it sort of whether you want to or not. And so if you just take one step back and watch the ways that God is causing things to grow in you in spite of everything that's going on, you know, there's there's sort of a lovely um, resting in in divine care that's coming from this text mm-hmm. and, and trust that even if you feel like you can't do it yourself, that's okay. God's going to draw it out of you in some way. Yeah. And, you know, agricultural metaphors like this, they always evoke the the long game, right? This is not mm-hmm. the immediate satisfaction, but the kind mm-hmm. of hope that hangs on for, for a long haul. And that's mm-hmm. kind of what we need in this Advent season, right? Where, where we need to be holding on to hope in circumstances that aren't going to go away tomorrow. Yeah. So maybe the question you phrase your, you frame your sermon around is this idea of where are you seeing green shoots, even in the midst of this, even out of yourself, when it feels like you have nothing left to offer. If you, if you begin with that sort of audacious hope or trust that God is still causing green shoots to come up, then look for them. And where do you see them? And how do they build on themselves just for having been noticed by you? Mm. Well, thanks. I think I think that's going to help uh, many of our preachers have something workable and yeah. appropriate for <laughs> this particular moment, uh, this unusual Advent season. So thanks for your prep on that, Rachel. Absolutely. Okay, friends, we're coming up on Christmas not too long from now. So come back. We've got something very special for you next week in our fourth Advent episode here on the First Reading Podcast. Check out our website. It is firstreadingpodcast.com. All of our episodes are there and you can subscribe to us there. We also have a Facebook page where we post all of this good stuff as well. So check us out there. Until next time, I'm Tim McNinch. And I'm Rachel Wren. Happy preaching. Happy preaching.